How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word and to be uh, encouraged and strengthened by what you have revealed to us. Father, we continue to pray for our nation. Thank you for the freedoms that we have. We thank you for the leaders that we have. We thank you for those who understand what the issues are today in this war against terrorism, which is really a war against radical Islamic terrorism, that this is a religious war from their perspective and that it must be dealt with in that way. Father, there are too many in this country who do not understand the realities of spiritual warfare and the realities of what underlie this war. And we pray that you would give us leaders who would understand those realities and would be willing to make the difficult decisions necessary to defeat the enemy. Father, we pray for us as a congregation. We pray for our study of your word. pray for our own personal application of it that we might continue to grow and mature as believers that no matter what may happen in the future in terms of our nation, in terms of what we face as a people, that we might have in our own souls that which we need to survive any crisis or any uh, any circumstance of, of adversity. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray we'd be challenged with the truth in these early chapters of Genesis as the foundation of the rest of the Scriptures. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this evening we're closing in on our this final review series that I'm doing related to the first 11 chapters of Genesis. One of the reasons I've done this is because we have we all need review. We go through this again and again and again. I went back over all my notes. I'm amazed at what I what I taught, what I learned. Not only that, I sat down in my study today looking at books, a stack of books that I haven't even touched in the last 18 months that I really hoped I would get through eventually because I, because I know it will be a while before I get back into uh, some of these areas again. There's just there's 66 books in the Bible, and there's only so much time. And uh, you just can't read everything or study everything. And from that perspective... I had, where did I put it? I had a uh, newsletter I picked up that was out on the stand, out on the uh, book stand out in the foyer from uh, the Institute for Creation Research. And I encourage you to get on their website, look at their papers, search through their material. They have a lot that goes into a lot more detail. I just try to summarize and give you a sense of what some of their studies present. I know some of you are a lot uh, 
sharper in some of these things than I will be in the area of science. And so you will get a lot more out of it. Their address, and then I encourage you to sign up for their monthly newsletter, which is called Acts and Facts. They are currently in their 33rd year of production in 2004. They started in 69, and I remember going to a, a uh, I think Henry Morris or Dr. Gish or one of them was in Houston about 69 or 70, and I signed up for Acts and Facts, and I have been get, receiving it ever since then. The address for Acts and Facts is P.O. Box 2667. That's 2667 in El Cajon. That's spelled C-A-J-O-N, California, El Cajon, California, 92021. Their website's www.icr.org. They have great books, videos. We usually keep some of their catalogs out in the foyer. Great stuff for kids. Great material. Another resource that I would encourage you to look at is, and I didn't bring this with me, I think his website is www.discipleshipministries.org. It's either .org or .com. And, uh, or you can do a Google on uh, Job Martin, and you spell Job, J-O-B as in Bravo, E, pronounced like the biblical Job. And uh, you can do a, uh, probably a Google on Job Martin and come up with his website. But he has two DVDs right now. He's coming out with a third called Those Incredible Creatures. And if you've got kids from the age of five or six all the way up to 60 or 70, then um, they will enjoy these videos. I've watched them two or three times, and it's just amazing the information he's collected about the remarkable design of so many different creatures. So I would encourage you to get those. I know there are people here who homeschool, and we've got people who listen to tapes that homeschool, and I think this is a great resource for everybody just to instill in everyone the importance of uh, special creation, ex nihilo creation, the design of creation, and that evolution in any of its forms just doesn't work. And, in fact, somebody was telling me that that uh, what they did for a school project, one of these science fair projects, was they had seen uh, some of Dr. Martin's videos on the incredible creatures and used that as a basis for a science project showing uh, intelligent design in the universe. And so these are these give you great ideas for different uh, types of, of subjects. So that's one resource, uh, icr.org. Uh, they're Acts and Facts. In fact, I got a call from John, Mar- uh, John Morris, who's the president of ICR this afternoon, and um, he wanted, and this is really kind of out of the ordinary for uh, Acts and Facts, which usually deals with creation issues, but it's such a hot issue right now. He asked me to write a 2,000-word article on the Da Vinci Code to come out sometime after the first of the year. So just another thing to do. But, you know, the more I go to these conferences, like the one we went to last week, and the more I'm convinced that the number of pastors who are teaching the Word in any kind of detail 
is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I'm not like Elijah. I'm not crying that there's no one else out there. There are probably 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal, but not more. (laughs) We live in an era of tremendous negative volition. And churches are dominated and seminaries are dominated by philosophies of ministry that are constantly dumbing down what gets into the pew. So we have to be a fight against that. But what that does is that it has left the few of us, and there by few I don't mean one or two. I think there are many, but they are few compared to the numbers they were uh, a generation ago. There are few left who really teach the word in depth and who are really taking a stand for biblical Christianity. And as a result of that, you know, opportunities or more opportunities arise to uh, for teaching than I think would have at least come my way in the past. So, Genesis six through nine—that's where we are. Let's do our little review. I know this may be getting a little repetitive for some of you, but think through Genesis. How many parts are there? What are they? You got you got four what? Four events and four people. Okay, the four events, four people. That gives you the outline for Genesis. The four events are what? Creation, fall, flood, Babel. Now, some of you still need more repetition on this. It's obvious. <laughs> then you have four people, and those are? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Well, I heard you that time. That was a little better. That's it. That is Genesis. And we ought to be sick of that before long, but at least you won't forget it. You know, that's one of the important things that we have that really distinguishes the kind of ministry that I have and the philosophy of ministry I have from that which is out there is that uh, most seminaries teach pastors to teach so it's memorable. Give, don't give them too many points. Just give them three or four. They can remember that. Hopefully by Monday night, they'll still remember your main idea. Just give them three points. Give them some real uh, funny illustrations or pointed illustrations. Don't talk more than 20 or 30 minutes so people can remember it. They've totally lost the fact that memory comes from repetition. And you hear it over and over and over and over again. And finally it sinks in and... You remember it because you can't forget it. Somebody bored you to death with it so many times that you can't get it out of your soul. And that is a radically different philosophy than what you get in seminaries. I believe that you teach by repetition over and over and over again. See the same slides here. It's said the same way so many times that you can't forget it. I don't want to teach so you can remember it. I want to teach so you can't forget it. Now think about that. There's a big difference there. And that is that marks a difference between philosophy of ministry we have here and what you'll find 99.9% of the other places. And that's why most Christians are failures in the Christian life. As they can't remember whatever it was they were taught because they only heard it once or twice. And I, in fact, I had one pastor tell me, he said, you know, we were taught never to say it the same way twice. It would bore people. Yeah, but if they hear it the same way all the time, they'll remember it. And that's the idea is to get it in there. I mean, it's just, it's teaching philosophy. Okay. 
This is our setup. In the first part, we've gone through creation, we've gone through fall, we started the flood last time, I'll finish the review this time, and we'll wrap up with the Tower of Babel next time. Each one of these events teaches some major doctrine. This is how God teaches, and this is something that we want to instill into the curriculum of the prep school, is to teach principles in terms of Old Testament events and people. Creation teaches us about who God is. It teaches us about his essence, his attributes, that he is the creator God that is completely distinct from all creation. This is exemplified in the doctrine of the ex nihilo creation, that God creates from nothing. That's what that Latin phrase means, ex nihilo, from nothing. Then the fall teaches us about man. The creation teaches us that God created man perfect in the image of God, that he created nature perfect. So we have God, man, and nature, but the fall affects man's relationship to God and man's relationship to nature. The most damaging environmental impact event of history was when Adam ate the fruit. And nothing that any corporation on this planet can do will ever equal the damage that Adam did by eating that, that fruit. So we have the fall, and that teaches us the need of salvation, why man has fallen, that it introduces the issue of evil, and why there is evil in the universe, and it introduces the issue of God's justice and righteousness. The flood focuses on salvation. Three key ideas in the flood. Grace, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. First time we find the use of that word in the New Testament. Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. God judges the planet, the human race, because of sin and the corruption that's a result of the uh, infiltration of the uh, demons, the sons of uh, God, infiltrating and marrying daughters of men. So God has to judge the entire world. And I believe, the more I'm studying 1 Peter 3, that this isn't just a, a, a earth event, This is a cosmic event and involves the whole universe. So we have the 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 flood teaches that, and then we have the Tower of Babel, which comes along and teaches the importance of nations and how God and, and really sets up the stage for why God has to call out one man and through him to create a new tribe, a new tribal group, a new nation. In history, Israel, and what he will do uh, through them. So that sets up the rest of the Bible. Now, we've developed this diagram. God, uh, in a triangle representing the Trinity, is a personal, infinite God. He's personal. He has relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what the triangle represents, the Trinity, that the ultimate reality of the universe is a person, a person who is capable of relationship, He is stable in those relationships, and he's had these relationships for eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So our ultimate environment is a person who is capable of perfect love. However, there is a radical distinction between the biblical God, who is a personal infinite God, and the rest of the universe. All energy, matter, everything that exists was created by God at one instant in time. There was nothing. There were no laws of physics. There was no matter. There was no energy. There was no gas cloud. There were no uh, gods or goddesses floating around. There were just nothing. 
and the next instant you have the universe. And God creates, uh, at that point I believe he had already created the angels, first the angels, then the universe. And then he, he, we have the fall of Satan between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, judgment in Genesis 1-2. And then, man re, then God recreates or restores the earth. And so we have all creation includes angels, man, animals, vegetation, and energy, but they're not, they don't participate in the same being. They are different categories. And these categories don't shade off into each other. They don't blend off into each other. Each is distinct. God creates according to kinds and categories. This is in contrast to all other systems of thought. No matter what the system of thought is that you run into, whether it is, whether you're talking about the kind of uh, uh, mythology of the Force behind Star Wars, or whether you're talking about the kind of uh, pure uh, impersonal science fiction or an impersonal universe with no no God, like you have in the Star Trek science fiction series, and I love. I enjoy science fiction. I know it's all, almost all science fiction is deeply rooted in um, uh, evolution, and you have to watch that. You have to be careful that you don't get sucked into those ideas. Uh, some people do, so you need to stay away from stuff like that. But every, all these other systems, or whether you're talking about uh, Western philosophy as it develops from the 6th century B.C. with the pre-Socratics like Thales, Anaximander, Anaximenes, uh, all the way up to Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, or whether you're talking about a, a, a pre-Greek mythology like the Enuma Elish, we've seen that all of these systems think about all existence as, as being, not a, a being in terms of a person. Remember, what lies behind everything is this infinite impersonal universe, just existence itself. So you have this circle. And this circle I have up here d- describes the um, the circle of being. And everything is inside this circle of being. God, angels, man, animals, nature. And they all participate in the same basic be- being. They're just It's just given out in different grades. God is spoken of in, for example, in Greek philosophy as being itself. And he is so full of being in Platonism that he just sort of uh, has to uh, create, everything flows out of him. He doesn't create out of nothing. Everything flows out of him and participates in his being. And frankly, this circle here, let me, I mean, this whole idea of the continuity of being, and that's what I'm talking about here, they all participate in the same being to different, at different levels, is... Um, you find it in everything, in all kinds of subtle ways, too. This circle is the same thing that you hear in that little song they sing in The Lion King, the circle of life. Pure pantheism. Pure pantheism, pantheistic monism. And everybody thinks, oh, this is just a wonderful little movie for children. But yet, at its very core, it's communicating monistic pantheism. That all reality is basically the same, and everything participates in the same uh, level of being or life. So, uh, you know, am I saying that you shouldn't go to movies? No, but you should use these movies to teach your kids. See, every now and then I get into discussions with what I would call more, uh, uh, let's say, more sensitive Christians, 
and they don't want their children seeing anything. Well, you know, you can't divorce your, your kids from the world. And, of course, as I pointed out when I got back from Greece, early Christians just had it almost shoved down their throat everywhere they looked. You can't hide in a barrel. You have to teach and interact with what's there. You may not want to expose your kids to everything, and I'm not saying that. But you can't run and hide either. But you have to realize every work of art, from music to visual arts, theater, literature, everything communicates a worldview. Everything communicates a worldview. Now, how many worldviews are there? Well, I just said there's basically two. Okay, so that means you're either going to read and be exposed to stuff that's biblical or it's non-biblical. Well, we can't run and hide from the non-biblical, so the thing is to teach people how to think critically and to evaluate. Now, to think critically, you have to have knowledge. Now, if you don't go to church and Bible class where a pastor teaches you in depth, you're not going to have the knowledge you need to be able to critically evaluate what you see artistically, what you hear musically, what you enjoy in terms of entertainment. And um, and so we have to learn this. Now, ultimately, this whole infinite impersonal universe ends up in some kind of monism. Monism means ultimate reality is reducible to one. And, for example, in the uh, Enuma Elish, which we read, uh, the early early on you have the, your, your gods, you have, uh, who is it, uh, Mumu, and um, I can't remember the other ones right now. But they're all this watery mass at the beginning. And then once you get the Greeks come along and they want to get, a, get away from the deification of the forces of nature, you have Thales, who's the first uh, real philosopher. And he says, well, ultimate reality, once you get past everything, is water. See, it's the same thing. He's just sort of demythologized uh, what, what was going on before. But all of these early, early Greek philosophers, every single one of them ends up being a monist. All reality is one. And that means that when you have these distinctions, and I use the, this uh, yin-yang symbol, where you have the white on one side, the black on the other, and you have a black circle inside the white area and a white circle inside the black area, that shows that even bad is good and good is bad and that ultimately all, re- all reality is reducible to one. You can't even distinguish between good and evil. That's monism. And it's, it's mi- it ultimately ends up buying into this continuity of being idea that all reality is one. And if all reality is one, then you can generate through your own intuitive insight and your own mystical connection to the universe, you can discern reality. This is pure arrogance, but it's mysticism. And mysticism came right out of this. Now, one of the interesting things, and this is why I go to, go to, uh, one reason I like to go to conferences, like the one we had last week, and uh, at the Conservative Theological Society in Dallas, is that you always learn something, or sometimes you get hit afresh with an idea that you always knew was there. And in one of my talks, I mentioned, was t- going through the history of philosophy and the history of the idea of the continuity of being and how it, and I traced it from the ancient myth- Egyptian, Mesopotamian, and Greek mythologies into early Greek philosophy down through Plato and Aristotle into Stoicism, Epicureanism, and then into Neoplatonism, and then from there down through all those people you, you, you never heard about like Boethius and, um, uh, 
Dionysius, the pseudo-Areopagite. See, I'm already putting some of you to sleep. Uh, all these medieval uh, philosophers, theologians that dominated the, the, the church. And I pointed out a historical trend that you find again and again, and that is that rationalism, rationalism slash empiricism always ends up being bankrupt. You can't find ultimate answers through reason or experience. And when you can't find ultimate answers, what do you do? You give up. You can't know. You become a skeptic. So rationalism and empiricism always gives way to skepticism. But you can't live as a skeptic. You can't live as if there's no hope, no reality, no ultimate uh, good future or anything. You have to live as if life has meaning and purpose and value. You have no reason for it anymore. Rationalism and empiricism have destroyed that. But you can't live as if there is no hope or value. So now you just believe it despite the evidence. That's called mysticism. Rationalism gives way to skepticism, which deteriorates to mysticism. And one guy, we had a panel discussion the last morning, and one individual asked the question, what happens after you deteriorate to mysticism? I looked at Tommy, who was sitting next to me, and Tommy looked at me, and I thought, you don't go anywhere. Mysticism is the dregs at the bottom of the garbage can of culture. You see it, you saw it in Africa before Livingston and others took the gospel to Africa. You saw it in the Asian religions in China, in Japan, in India, that Hinduism, Buddhism just, it, it creates a, it's the dregs of culture. It doesn't produce anything of value. What changed Asia was the introduction of Christianity. Unfortunately, a lot of other garbage from Western civilization went in as well. But what, what changed the East was those positively the elements that came directly or indirectly from Christianity. Same thing in the West. The West was enmeshed in mysticism at the time of Christ. Greek, the Greco-Roman religions had all deteriorated into mysticism, and the only thing that that got them that reversed that was the New Testament, was Christianity. So once you go through this cycle, every culture bankrupts itself into mysticism, and then it begins to deteriorate into primitivism and self-destruction, and the only thing that can change it, the only thing that can reverse it, is biblical Christianity. So, And it all because of this ultimate concept of an infinite, impersonal universe. Then we looked at the fall. So that all deals with the creation. We looked at, at the fall last week, and our, excuse me, at the flood, and how this demonstrates this whole principle of God's integrity, that he looks down on man and he must, he is required by his own character to judge man. And this comes from his integrity, and his integrity has four components. Righteousness, which is the uh, standard of his character, Righteousness provides those do's and the don'ts, the absolutes. Justice is the outworking or the application of that standard. Then we have uh, truth. Truth is the foundation of his integrity. And the reason I say it's the foundation is because the Hebrew word for truth is the word emet. Emet. And emet looks like this. It starts with an olive. E-M-E-T. Etymologically, uh, it goes back to a root 
that has to do with the foundation on which you would set a pillar. So it has the idea of stability, something that is immovable, something that is steadfast. All of that has to do with just the etymological root of truth. Truth is that which is stable. It is absolute. It provides that foundation for everything. So the truth is the foundation of God's integrity and love is the love supplies the solution that is given through God's grace. So I put up this chart. We have the Trinity, and in the Trinity we highlight these four attributes, righteousness, justice, love, and veracity, and that produces outside of God grace. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor, and grace only goes to those who don't deserve it. Adam and Eve did not receive grace. They were the recipients of God's personal love, and in God's personal love, he supplied all kinds of things for them. But they had perfect righteousness, and so God did not need to supply them in grace. Grace is for those who don't deserve it. Psalm 89.14 connects these attributes. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness, the Hebrew word chesed, which emphasizes God's faithful, loyal love, and truth go before you. So that links these four elements of integrity together. Now, we come to our review of the flood itself and the ark. One of the issues that frequently comes up as you study the flood is, is this feasible? The whole thing, is it feasible? Is the ark feasible? Is it feasible that a man could put all these animals on the ark and run a floating zoo for a year and uh, keep all those animals alive and feed them? And what about the sanitation problems? And we covered that in detail. Just to remind you of a few things, the ark was not some small little floating boat, but it was the largest seagoing vessel to be built until the late 19th century. In fact, in 1858, the Pacific and Orient vessel, the Himalaya, uh, which was 240 feet by 35 feet, uh, and then there were, uh, then let me see, let me look at my notes here. The, and then the Isambard K. Brunei, uh, then, then, excuse me, then Isambard K. Brunei built the Great Eastern, which was 692 feet by 83 feet by 30 feet, which had, it was approximately 19,000 tons and was five times the tonnage of any ship built to that point. And it was for another, it wasn't for another 40 years that another vessel was built, you know, 1898, that another vessel was built that was as large as or larger than the ark. It had a tremendous capacity. It was 438 feet long and 73 feet wide. So uh, up until 1858, the largest vessel had been the Pacific and Orient vessel, the Himalaya. That was the largest vessel until Brunei built the Great Eastern. And that had larger tonnage than the, um, the uh, excuse me, I'm skipping around here. He built, there was the, the Himalaya and the Great Eastern were the largest two vessels up to that point. Then he built the Great Britain, which was 322 feet by 51 feet by 32 and a half feet. So that had ratios that were similar to the ark. 
and that was the first ship in 1858 that was uh, larger than the ark. It had a capacity of 522 standard livestock cars. So it could have carried three times the amount of animals necessary at the time of the ark. We went through the study there uh, saw that there was a difference of opinion among creationists as studies go on. John Wood Merapi, in his recent book, A Feasibility Study on Noah's Ark, suggested there were only 17,000 kinds. Whitcomb and Morris earlier had suggested there may be as many as 60,000 kinds, but even if you take their larger figure, uh, still only half of the ark would have... Um, would have taken up the animals. The rest would have been for food and other supplies. So the ark itself was feasible. The idea of managing all these animals was also extremely uh, feasible. So in terms of the mechanics of the ark, uh, managing the animals, the uh, all of those things, that's feasible. One thing I did not cover was what happens... Uh, in, in the uh, in the flood itself, I never discussed uh, certain geologic evidence, and I want to take some time uh, to add some information on that to what we've studied in the past. When you study Noah's flood in Genesis six, question that should occur to you is why is this really important? I have belabored this point again and again. Why is Noah's flood important? Why is the flood important? A flood is important because it, understanding what Genesis says about the flood, changes everything about how you view earth history. It changes everything about how you view earth history. If the Bible is correct, if the record that we have in Genesis 6 through 8 is a universal reality, then, uh, is, is historically accurate, then then it changes everything in terms of science and everything you hear about. Ages, the age of the earth, time, dating mechanisms, everything. And I've, in the early part of Genesis 1, I did some studies on dating, and I'm not going to go back and review and go over that technical material again, but this is the point in flood geology. On the one hand, you have those who believe there was a literal worldwide flood, that lasted up to a year, that changed everything about the earth's structure. And the results of a flood of that nature would have impacted many other of earth's systems, not just water. It would have changed, uh, the same, changed geology. It would have changed meteorology. At, uh, as we'll see b- before we finish tonight, it would have an impact on creating an environment uh, that would uh, be developed into the ice ages. All of this is a result of that worldwide flood. On the other hand, you have modern geology, which insists that the earth is millions and millions of years old, and that all life on earth developed uh, gradually through a process known as evolution, and that the evidence of this process is what is embedded in the rocks in terms of fossils. And uh, evolutionists and historical geologists go out and they look at these different levels of strata and the different fossils that are found in those uh, strata, 
and they date the rocks and they argue that that just as the lowest level goes from the most simple life forms to um, the larger mammals at the top, so this reflects Earth's history. And this is the concept of modern geology. Flood geology argues that all of these fossils were laid down at the same time in a catastrophic global event that killed every everything except the animals that were on uh, Noah's Ark. And the difference is a time factor of uh, just a few years. So uh, theology or modern geology argues that you have lengthy time frame because the assumption is that if you have enough time, anything can happen. And here we have a cartoon of a man uh, lifting up the carpet of time and sweeping under the rug. Uh, fossil, the lack of fossil transitions, the lack of mechanisms for evolution, the uh, reality of the design of living things, and uh, observable order in the universe, and all those are just under, swept under the carpet of time and ignored by the evol- evolutionists. So we want to look at what the Bible says here. And the Bible says that earth really isn't that old. From Abraham until now... It's only about 4,000 years. Abraham lived, as we'll see when we get into Abraham, about, he was born about 2156 BC. And we're now just after the turn of the millennium, so we have a little over 4,000 years. The, if you take the genealogies, which we'll come back to for one last look next week, if you take those genealogies and if there are no gaps, then you have 300 years. And I've got some new quotes. I've been doing a lot of reading and research in terms of background studies for Abraham and archaeology. And you can't trust the dates even in archaeology. If, if any archaeologist gives you a date for any civilization beyond about 2000 B.C., then just discount it. And we'll get into some of the reasons for that later. But a lot of it has to do with the fact that they date things on the same basis the same assumption of uniformity that evolution uses. So if the dating is flawed for evolution, then it's also flawed for archaeology. Archaeology says that there are datable remains in some areas of uh, Egypt and Mesopotamia back to 7,000 B.C. Well, wait a minute. If you take a strict flood, cre- uh, flood chronology... You got a flood about 2560 BC, so what happens? So, well, we'll have to look at that in, in detail as we get into, uh, background studies for Abraham. So from the flood to Abraham is about 300 years. From the creation to the flood is 1656 years. So according to my calculations, that puts the, uh, creation or the restoration of Genesis 1 back to about, uh, 41 56 or 4165, I'm dyslexic, can't remember, about 4150 B.C., plus or minus 15 or 20 years. Now, that takes us back to the restoration. Some people say, well, the earth could be millions and millions of years older. Yeah, but why would you ever think of millions of years? The only reason you think of millions of years is because you're giving some sort of credence to the dating mechanisms of evolutionists. But if none of those dating mechanisms work, and we've studied that in the past, if none of those dating mechanisms work, then there's no reason that the earth uh, could 
is much older than five or 6,000 years. So, in fact, if you use the same uniformitarian presupposition, the earth can't be any older than about uh, maybe 1500 B.C. And one argument for that is the strength of the earth's magnetic sphere. Studies were done uh, in the late 70s measuring the earth's magnetic sphere. They've measured it for uh, 150 years, I think, now. Every year they measure the strength of the earth's magnetic sphere. And each year it grows measurably weaker. And so you can plot that out on a graph, and then you can extrapolate. You can develop a formula showing what the decay rate is, and then you can extrapolate backward. And if you extrapolate backward, what you discover, I think, is that about uh, 12,000 B.C., the magnetic sphere on the Earth would have been too powerful to support life. At 15,000 to 18,000 B.C., the Earth would begin to implode. So uh, I mean, if uniformitarian presuppositions are correct... You can't have an Earth that's any older than about 15,000 B.C., uh, 16,000, 17,000 years total. So uh, the Earth is very young. You don't need long ages. I don't think it took uh, Lucifer very long before he became arrogant. You know, a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of hundred years, but not five billion years. And, um, and I don't think it took Adam and Eve very long before they sinned. We don't know how long it took them to before they sinned. We do know that Seth is born after Cain murders Abel. Seth was born when Adam was 120 years old. That sets your parameter right there. Now, I've had some people say, well, that's only 120 years from the flood. Wait a minute. Time started when, at the first day when God said it was evening and it was morning, day one. Day two, day three, you, you're counting time from Genesis 1-3 on, you have measurable time. So you've just got to be, you know, an absolute idiot to try to think that time doesn't start until Adam falls. So it says Adam was 120 years old. Adam might have been 30 years old when, when Noah sinned. I mean, when uh, Adam sinned. He might have been 100, he might have been 80 years old. He might have been 70 years old. But he's still been around 70 years. The earth had, the, uh, you'd had evening and morning. Uh, 360 days a year for 80 years. It's amazing the links people go to to try to avoid literal interpretation of the Scripture to fit some uh, some scientific presupposition that won't hold water. So the age of the earth is somewhere uh, between, just to give it a little leeway, six to 7,000 years. Second Peter we read, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. See, this is the principle known as uniformitarianism. I'll write that up on the overhead for you. Uniformitarianism. U-N-I-F-O-R-M, uniform, that all everything in the universe has a uniform rate of deterioration. Uniform, uniformitarian principles and ism at the end. Uniformitarianism says that all these decay rates continue at the same rate they do today. Therefore, if you can measure the decay rate of something today, then you can create a formula and extrapolate backward, and that will give you the age of something. 
All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now, the challenge for this is that, I, as I mentioned Sunday morning, the Institute for Creation Research has come out with a new book uh, called, uh, I think it's just called The, uh, the Rate Project, R-A-T-E, and that's an acronym for something that I, I don't remember what it was if I ever knew it. And it has been a 10-year study by these scientists, and they have taken all manner of objects and rocks and fossils and subjected them to all manner of blind study tests and dating, uh, uh, different dating mechanisms, whether it's potassium, argon, radiometric, carbon-14, whatever it is, and they've come up with an incredible range of dates. They've also made a lot of other analysis. For example, one thing I do know, they took coal and they dated coal, and coal, which was allegedly, according to evolution, formed uh, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of years ago. Uh, coal all dates to just several thousand years, four or five thousand years ago. So that fits a biblical model, a flood geology. So uh, this this is going to shake up a lot of stuff. So uniformity is all things continue uh, as they once did. For, for this they willingly are ignorant that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. See, Second Peter 3.5 says that modern man is willingly ignorant of what the Bible says about the heavens in Genesis 1, that God separated the waters above the earth from the waters in the earth so that the description is that the heavens of old, where you have the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the earth that then was, that is the pre-flood earth, being overflowed with water, perished. There's your divine judgment. So if you ignore that, you've got to come up with some other explanation for where all these dead things came from that you find in the rock. And uh, the presupposition that underlies all this is uniformity, biological uniformity, astronomical uniformity, people say, well, what about light years? You say that the, the speed of light, that light travels in a year is, what, 186,000 um, feet per second. And you say, well, that, that, see, that's a measurement. That's a time measurement. I mean, a, a distance measurement. Uh, excuse me, it's a time measurement. And uh, astronomical uniformity. But what if it doesn't travel at the same rate? Through the universe, we can't measure that. That's a, an assumption. You have geological uniformity, and that can be tested as well. The idea in geological uniformity is that the present processes have continued for billions and billions of years. So you can measure all of these things. And the primary way they, that they use today is radio isotope dating. But the question is, how do you date a rock? Uh, does somebody say, ask it out? Yeah. And we have examples of, of utilizing radiometric dating on n- the uh, known age of a rock. For example, at a volcanic site where the, the, the liquid is thrown out and then it solidifies and becomes a rock. And that we know exactly when that happened in many cases. We know when the volcano erupted. So you take a known age, a, a rock that you know the age, and you test it. And what do you come up with? And this is a chart developed by John Morris. And there are just, I just have a number of different examples here. For example, in the, and I don't know how to pronounce this first one, Hualali, 
Anybody been there? That's in Hawaii. Uh, the Hualali Basalt. It's 200 years old. We know that. It's a fact. But it measures 0.6 million years. Uh, Mount Etna Basalt. Mount Etna has erupted many, many times. Uh, we know that uh, some that it goes back to 2,100 years. So this is about uh, 100 years before Christ. But it measures to 25 million years. At another area, a recent eruption, the, the basalt's only 29 years old. We know that for a fact. And yet it measures to 35 million years. Now let's skip at the uh, uh, Kilauea uh, basalt. Measures to two, less than two, it's less than 200 years. We know that. But it measures to 21 million years. Uh, Mount Erebus, it's we know it's 17 years old, but it measures to 1.6 million years old. So when we take these dating mechanisms and test them against rocks where we know the age, it gives completely erroneous information. So if, if it doesn't work when we can know the results for sure, how can we trust it at all? Well, we can't. So you just throw it out. It's just a waste. So what we're left with is is an understanding of Scripture that that there could have been a and that there was a worldwide flood that reshaped the entire Earth's surface. This is a radical event. You can you can see evidence of this everywhere. See, the problem is if you take an old Earth position, and we've we've gone back, we've studied this that there were that Christians came up with several different ways to try to. Uh, compromise or try to merge what the Bible teaches with evolution. You have theistic evolution, the idea that God just uses the processes of evolution to bring life, that God just sort of creates everything initially, but he oversees the process of evolution. You have a view held today called threshold of progressive evolution. And this is the idea that these days in Genesis represent periods of time. And periods of creative activity, perhaps, are there each day is really a, a geologic age. But in any of these positions, you almost always, though not without exception, but you almost always end up with people taking a local flood view. Even in the what I call the new gap view that developed in the 19th century that tried to insert all the geologic ages and fossils and Neanderthal men and everything else in between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Even that view, many people who hold that view also held to a, to a uh, local flood. But we've seen the data, we studied that, the flood is universal, and a universal flood is going to give evidence. I remember in the late 70s, there was a flood on the Guadalupe River down in Texas in the hill country, about 70 or 80 miles west-southwest of Austin, about 60 miles south of Fredericksburg, uh, there were some uh, fl- had a terrible flash flood that went down this very narrow area that uh, uh, basically just carved it out, just ripped out all the trees, and it caught a school bus of high school kids, and uh, some of them were never never found. But even now, you can drive down along that riverbed and you see the evidence of that flood. Now that was just a small local flood that lasted a couple of days. What do you think a worldwide flood that covers all the mountains in the last year is going to do? Uh, if you go with an old earth view, you have to n- just negate 
the evidence of Genesis 6 through 9. You, you, you have to uh, just say, well, it was just a mild little event. But that's not what the scriptures portray. The result of taking the flood literally is that, that it would result in vast deposits of sediments which would contain the extensive remains of plant and animal life. And that's what you would find all over the planet. You would find, uh, you know, rock laid down by water filled with the remains of dead things. And that's fossils. And uh, I remember, I kick myself now, but I remember when I was in my uh, 20s and even, I guess, in college, working down at Camp Penile, and we would take our campers out on uh, hikes up in uh, around the uh, hills in the hill country, and we found all kinds of fossils, clams and starfish, and I never kept any of those. And I, I wish I had now, but, you know, when you're young, you don't always realize what you've got sometimes. But fossils show that... that um, these animals were were killed quickly. If you go out and you kill a clam today and leave its remains out on the uh, beach down at uh, Rocky Neck or Crystal Beach, or is it not Crystal Beach? What, what's the beach down there in New London? What? Ocean Beach. I don't know where you Crystal Beach is in Galveston. <laughs> down on Ocean Beach, you just lay out your clam shells down there. Are they going to fossilize? No, they're not. See, something catastrophic has to happen to create those fossils, something that happens rapidly. And so you, what you find in the fossil record is something very interesting. You also find, you, you usually have some kind of shellfish. I think about, we'll have a chart on this in a minute, but I think about 95% of all fossils are sh- some kind of shellfish. But there are also some unusual fossils that you find. I got these slides from uh, John Morris last week. Uh, this is just fascinating. This person's holding an iron pot. Of course, it's not much. It's about the size of your hand. But this is an iron pot which clearly shows that somebody knew how to work with metal. You'll never guess where they found this. It was embedded deep in a vein of coal in West Virginia. My, where did that come from? Coal was formed, what, 150, 200,000 years ago, and yet you've got a man-made object embedded deep inside the coal. Here's something else that they found in the coal. Now, this doesn't make your high school textbook or college textbook. This is a well-crafted item. It's a bell, and on the top of the bell there is this uh, figure of a god or a goddess. And this was found embedded deep within this uh, uh, a coal layer. Uh, we were talking about it at dinner the other night, and uh, Charlie mentioned the fact that when he was, uh, uh, I guess, just out of seminary, he was in Virginia, and uh, actually he was candidating to be the pastor of the church where Henry Morris went. And this was down there, down in Virginia, and he asked uh, Dr. Morris at the time if anybody had found any human remains in the coal beds in West Virginia. I mean, that just completely disrupts the whole uh, theory of, of, of evolution if you would find human remains inside the coal. And he said, yes, as a matter of fact, there have been a number of strange things like that that had happened. Usually they would call in. As soon as that happens, they stop. They call in the archaeologists, 
And the archaeologists cordon the area off and take all the evidence away and bury it somewhere in the Smithsonian. You know, like at the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they have the Ark of the Covenant and crate buried in a warehouse somewhere in Maryland. Well, that's what they have this stuff buried somewhere because it doesn't fit the theory. So until they figure out how they can explain it, they just ignore it. And, of course, there's no real evidence of that. Um, uh, ICR made contact with a guy a few years ago who was a retired worker at the Smithsonian who confirmed that. But, you know, at this stage, it's basically along the line of, of um, word of mouth. In the fossil record, 95% of all fossils are marine invertebrates, primarily shellfish. 95%. And they're found where? On top of the land. They're not found in the ocean. They're found on top of, of uh, dry land. 95% of the remaining 5% are plants. So that gets up to us uh, pretty close to 99%. 95% of the remainder are fish. So that, and most of the rest are insects. Much less than 1% are land vertebrates. And these usually consist of less than one bone. So we have very little evidence that we're using to extrapolate uh, tremendous theories from. Fossils are found in catastrophic underwater deposits, but only on the continents, in dry land now, which indicates that at one time the earth was covered with water. Well, let me see. How can we explain that? Well, gee, we have something right at, at hand here, the Noahic Flood. Genesis 7:11, where we're told the fountains of the great deep opened and the flood, uh, the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of heaven were opened and the entire earth was covered in water. So if we believe in a flood, then we would expect to find evidence of catastrophic deposition of rocks and fossils not something developed slowly and gradually over a period of time. We would also expect to to discover deposition occurring on a regional or continental scale. Now think about that. For a slide I'm going to show you in a minute. Regional or continental scale. This isn't local stuff. It isn't something that just didn't happen in the Mesopotamian River Valley, but happened all over the earth at the same time. Now one evidence of this is known as turbidites. Turbidites. Now, turbidite, from the word turbulent, this describes an underwater mud flow. Now, we know that this happens today. There was a turbidite in 1927, just northeast of here, off the coast of Newfoundland. An underwater shelf broke off, which set up a mud flow that went out into the Atlantic. Okay, its speed was 60 miles an hour. It went for 430 miles. Now, we know how fast it went because it broke telephone cables. There were telephone cables out there in 1920. It broke telephone cables so they could measure the time between the breaking of those cables so they could determine how how fast it was moving. It went 430 miles, it was 2 to 3 feet thick, and it covered an area of 40,000 square miles. 
So what we would expect to find in the view of a catastrophe, worldwide catastrophe is that there would be many of these turbidites and evidence of that in the geological record. And what we discover is that one-third to one-half of all sedimentary rock now found on the continents is understood as a, as a result of a turbidite. One-third to half of all sedimentary rock. Well, everything on top of the Earth's surface is sedimentary rock. So that's turbidites, I mean, outside of lava flows. Turbidity flows continue to happen today. See, if there was just one, that wouldn't prove anything. But they continue to happen underwater. So that means that all of the planet had to be covered with water. And the idea of a worldwide flood predicts a world full of turbidites. So this fits a biblical model. It does not fit an evolutionary or historical geology model. And you have evidences of this, for example, in um, the Grand Canyon, where you have this whole layer right here is a result of a turbidity flow. I mean, it's just like laying a mud pancake across the uh, surface of the earth. But the interesting thing here is this turbidity flow isn't just localized to Arizona. It's part of what is called the Salk Sequence, which covers almost all of the North American continent. And here you have an overlay showing the uh, Salk Sequence and how that covers almost all of the North American continent. Now, see, this is evidence of a regional catastrophe, not a local catastrophe, but a regional or continent-wide catastrophe. Well, of course, that doesn't fit the evolutionary model. That only fits the model of a, of a worldwide flood in, uh, in Noah's time. Another evidence. Now, I couldn't get any really clear pictures. I hope this shows up. Another evidence of, um, that supports the biblical view is something known as polystrata trees. Now, poly means many, strata means many strata, and trees. So here you have a, um, a tree that has been fossilized or petrified, and here you see all these different strata. Well, think about it. If all those strata were laid down over millions and millions of years, would that tree still be there? No, it wouldn't. Here's another picture. Here you have uh, somebody standing next to this fossilized tree. And here you have all the different layers of strata. What would happen, we saw evidence of this with the Mount St. Helens explosion, that when uh, the mud flows came down off of Mount St. Helens, it pushed thousands and thousands of trees down into Spirit Lake, and it was just all covered. And then as those trees absorbed water and became waterlogged, they dropped. Instead of lying flat on the surface and sinking, they would drop root down. And then they would sink root down like they were standing up. And then as all of that silt and dirt and sediment that came down in the water began to, to silt out of the, of the water in Spirit Lake, it laid down in strata at the bottom of the lake. And all this happened within a year. It didn't happen over millions and millions of years. So that is, uh, uh, argues against uh, any kind of a long-term, long-going process over millions and millions of years. Now, after the flood, a couple of interesting things happen. 
And I don't have time to get into this. Maybe I'll come back and talk about it at the beginning next time because we're really getting into the post-flood environment. In fact, I will because I want to do a little more reading on this. But one of the things that happens is that you, you have the development of the ice ages. And that can only happen if you presuppose a worldwide flood and the dynamics of a worldwide flood. It can't happen under uniformitarian principles. In fact, there is no no modeling that has been done by meteorologists can produce the kinds of circumstances on the earth today that would produce an ice age. They can't figure out what the mechanics would be. However, there's a meteorologist who works with ICR named Michael Oard, O-A-R-D, and he's produced a number of studies and developed a computer model where he, which predicted under, uh, under the conditions of a worldwide flood, after he put all the data in there, it predicted uh, the, uh, an ice age scenario. In fact, where that, and, and it produced maps of where the ice flows would be. And Acts and Facts came out with this. I think um, I read this seven or eight years ago. It was about the time I came up here. And he plotted out where the ice flows would be. Guess what? Where the computer model projected the ice flows was where the ice flows actually took place. So only a catastrophic model can uh, provide the basis for the, the, the meteorological conditions necessary to produce an ice age. But another thing that you have... It took place is there's a book out by Charles Hapgood called Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings, Evidence of Advanced Civilization in the Ice Age. And what I have here, this is just a uh, rough drawing. Uh, it's hard to duplicate or scan in some of his maps. But what this shows is a complete mapping of the Antarctic continent without ice. It shows where all the rivers would be, all the mountains, where the valleys are, everything. And, of course, after it got covered in ice, nobody could, nobody could uh, chart it. So it had to have been charted before there was an ice cap. The other thing is, and you guys who are in the Navy know this, that in order to produce an accurate chart and a map, you not only have to have latitude, you have to have longitude. Now, in order to, with latitude, you, you can check that with a sextant, but with longitude, you have to have what? An accurate, reliable timepiece. And, of course, there was a book that came out a few years ago called Longitude, which they made into a, move, a TV movie, I think, but told the story about how, uh, I forget the man's name now, but how he uh, discovered or invented a reliable timepiece that uh, they could carry on ships that wouldn't be subject to rust, or to the expansion and, and uh, shrinkage of metals caused or wood caused by humidity and various other factors. And this didn't occur until the late 1700s. So you didn't have a reliable timepiece until the late 1700s. So you couldn't, uh, seagoers, naval vessels, couldn't plot accurate uh, longitude until the late 1700s. Well, wait a minute. Here's a map that goes back to unknown antiquity. I mean, these maps were available to Columbus and to others in the 16th century, but they were very old maps. And they had correct longitude and latitude all laid out for Antarctica. Well, Hapgood argues that these were mapped about the time of the Ice Age. 
Now that fits what we know about the Bible, because the sons of Noah would have been going out, those first two or three generations would have been going out exploring the earth. And they had all of the technology available to them from the antediluvian civilization. So they knew how to do all of this. They knew the math. They knew they had uh, accurate timepieces. They had uh, all kinds of accurate navigational skills. So it's quite interesting. The more you study and the more you dig around, see, it's hard to find this stuff because it's not mainstream. But the more you study this stuff, the more you can come up with uh, evidence that supports the biblical view as opposed to the secular view. All right, what we've learned from this is in the flood is that God judges the earth. And everywhere we look, every time you see a fossil, you think of God's judgment. But God's grace prevailed. He provided salvation, and it is a, the, the flood is a picture for us in the Bible of the salvation that God provides through His grace. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study these things uh, tonight, to understand that there's tremendous verification in the world around us of the truth of your word and of the reality of a worldwide flood at the time of Noah. Now, Father, as we continue to study in Genesis, we pray that you would challenge us with the truths we learn, that we might have a closer relationship with you and be challenged to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.